I am 729 miles away from Chicago. I've got a full tank of gas, half pack of cigarettes, it's dark, and I'm wearing sunglasses. Hit it! DIY and How Studios presents Real Rock with Andy King. Part of the Rock and Roll Archaeology Network of Podcasts. Let's go up to 10. Exactly. Does that mean it's louder? Is it any louder? Well, it's one louder. Music. Culture. Technology. And rock and roll. Now, on with the show. Welcome to Real Rock, a production of Pantheon Podcasts. In this episode, we will take a look at the 1980 film The Blues Brothers, directed by John Landis, starring John Belushi and Dan Aykroyd, and featuring more amazing musical cameos than you can shake a harmonica at. I will be looking at various points of the film, so consider this your spoiler warning. You can view the film on Amazon or pretty much anywhere and come back for our discussion. Some of the questions we will be answering today are, How much cocaine did Belushi do? Did Aretha Franklin single-handedly kill Disco? Go, Aretha! And finally, exactly how did I manage to work a Paul Simon joke into this episode? I'm the rock and roll reverend, Andy King, on a real mission of God to bring you Real Rock, The Blues Brothers. You better get bright, pal. We got a show to do. Then we got to figure out some way to collect that gate money. Get it to the Cook County Assessor's Office as soon as they open in the morning. Joliet, Jake, and Elwood Blues. Two men with a mission, and only 11 days. John Belushi. You, how much for your wife? <laughs> Dan Aykroyd. After the gig, uh, maybe we could, like, uh, hang out together. James Brown. I heard the sound in my car. Cab Calloway. Ray Charles. You, you know depreciation, man. Carrie Fisher. I must now kill you and your brother. Aretha Franklin. You're living with me now, and you're not gonna go sliding around with your old white woman friends. Henry Gibson. He better pray the police get to him before we do. And the Blues Brothers Band. Let's go, boys. The Blues Brothers. Are you the police? No, ma'am. We're musicians. Summer of 1979. Director John Landis has a problem. Well, he's got a bunch of problems, but one real big one. The suits at Universal are breathing down his neck. His current project is massively over budget and way behind schedule. The press always quick to indulge in schadenfreude, are calling his film a bloated vanity project that will never succeed. But on this particular night, the nattering of the press and the panic of the studio execs are not his biggest worries. Here on location, in Harvey, Illinois, one of his lead actors, John Belushi, is missing. This is not uncommon with Belushi. His cocaine habit has taken a real toll on the production. The mantra on the set was, if you see John doing drugs, stop him. 
Landis turns to his other lead actor, Dan Aykroyd. Dan, go find him. Now. Dan can be trusted. And except for John's wife, Judy Belushi, Dan Aykroyd is the only one who can reach John. On a hunch, Dan follows a grass pathway to a lone house with a light on. We can only speculate on what Dan was feeling on this 3 a.m. stroll to find his partner, but it's easy to imagine an exasperated roll of the eyes as he knocks on the door. Dan tells the homeowner, we're shooting a movie and uh, I'm looking for one of my actors, but before he can even finish, the homeowner interrupts. You must be here for Belushi. We fed him and he's asleep on the couch. Dan peeks through the door and tells John, time to go back to work. John gets up and the two go back to the shoot as if nothing had ever happened. Everyone wanted their own John Belushi story. Letting him into your house in the middle of the night to sleep off a coke binge would have to rate pretty high. But of course, for 20 some odd weeks of the year, for the past four years, millions of people had been letting John Belushi into their house in the middle of the night, courtesy of their television sets. Look, I, I can't put this man on television. He's, I mean, he's, he's barely awake. Lauren, if John Belushi could speak, He'd tell you he's got to go on. Doc, I, I, I don't understand. Why are you so convinced that this man can do a show? <laughs> I'll be perfectly honest, it's about my fee. You see, uh, if he doesn't go on, yeah. he doesn't get paid. Right. And if he doesn't get paid, I don't get paid. And if I don't get paid, I'll be forced to cut off his drugs. Live from New York, it's Saturday night! Saturday Night Live debuted in the fall of 1975 and quickly became a cultural landmark. 44 seasons later, it's still the reason to stay home on a Saturday night. SNL is a reminder that everything old is new again. In the early days of television, live variety shows were a staple. But by the mid-70s, the format was all but extinct. Until SNL brought it back. A variety show with a new twist some rock and roll attitude. Instead of getting some showbiz heavy hitter to emcee it, they brought in guest hosts each week. The first show of the first season was hosted by George Carlin. SNL had a great house band, and every show would feature a musical guest or two. It wasn't long before a musical slot on SNL became a highly coveted gig. A lot of musicians had their careers jump-started or revitalized after playing Saturday Night Live. And on a handful of memorable occasions, we've seen a musical act crash and burn live on national television. Awesome. Almost as good as a 20-car pileup in a NASCAR race. Ashley Simpson, anybody? How about Millie Vanilli? Sorry, didn't mean to traumatize you there. The other twist was the live sketch comedy. This group of talented unknowns called themselves the not-ready-for-prime-time players. Dan Aykroyd, John Belushi, Chevy Chase, Jane Curtin, Garrett Morris, Bill Murray, Lorraine Newman, and Gilda Radner. Chevy Chase was the first to leave the fold. He bailed after the first season to take a shot at movie stardom. But Chevy's movie career sputtered after he starred in several mediocre, not-very-funny comedies. John Belushi was the first real breakout star. In 1978, he took a role in a raunchy, low-budget comedy written and directed by three of his old friends at National Lampoons. Animal House was an unexpected smash, and it made Belushi 
a movie star. Nothing is over until we decide it is. Was it over when the Germans bombed Pearl Harbor? Hell no! Germans? Forget it, he's rolling. And it ain't over now. Because when the going gets tough... The tough get going! Who's with me? Let's go! Come on! Any adjective that you can think of to describe Belushi, choose the opposite to describe Dan Aykroyd. John was frenetic, big and noisy, chaotic, a force of nature. Dan complimented that. A perfect straight man, a comic foil who deadpan delivered punchlines that would absolutely kill. Classic formula, comic and straight man, and Belushi and Aykroyd were one of the all-time great duos. But Dan Aykroyd gave more than just a comic foil for Belushi. Dan gave John the blues. And think to that first day in uh, 73, it would have been, that uh, John walked through the back door of the Second City Firehouse Theater on Lombard Street in Toronto. And it was a snowy, blustery, wintry night and the green room door gave right out onto the parking lot. So if you went out of the green room, you could have a cigarette or come back and then go on stage. And the door swung open and there was this figure in a Lee J. Cobb style driving cap, hexagonal driving cap, with a white scarf and a big thick cable knit sweater cardigan and jeans and sneakers and pack of cigarettes, uh, completely underdressed. Uh, for the uh, Canadian winter that swirled around him as my first image hit me of John Belushi silhouetted against a uh, a Toronto evening sky at around midnight with a blizzard around him. Well, we fell in love, of course, as you know, and uh, that night, in fact, <laughs> formed the Blues Brothers because we were listening to Downchild Blues Band. And John uh, said, I like heavy metal. I said, well, uh, you're from Chicago. You surely know about these blues artists. He said, oh, yes, I do, but I, I'm a grand funk devotee and Zep devotee. So I said, well, we can teach each other. <clears throat> I'll teach you about some Canadian blues and the roots of, of great blues, uh, as depicted by Donnie and the Downchild Band. And he said, well, you know, I love guitar. Whatever, whatever we do, it's got to have great guitar in there. And so I think from that was the, the, Inception of the Blues Brothers. The Blues Brothers made their first appearance on SNL in January of 1976. Kind of. They were just like bees. Fucking bees. And they sang I'm a King Bee. Ah, the 70s. I'm a king bee, baby. Want you to be my queen. Well, together we can make honey, baby. The world has never seen. Let's well, me back. It was two years later, on April 22nd, 1978, that the duo donned their trademark ill-fitting suits, sunglasses, and fedoras to rip in to Hey Bartender. I'm Don Kushner, and welcome to Rock Concert. In 1969... Marshall Checkers of the legendary Checkers Records called me on a new blues act that had been playing in small 
funky clubs on Chicago's South Side. Today, with the help of Nessie Wexler, Jerry Erdogan, and the staff of Pacific Records, their manager, Maury Daniels, and with the support of fellow artists, Curtis Salgado and the Cray Band, they are no longer an authentic blues act, but have managed to become a viable commercial product. So now, let's join Jolly X Jake and his silent brother, Elwood, the Blues Brothers. Friends felt so good I had to blow again. I said, hey, bartender, hey man, look here. Draw one, draw two, draw three, four glasses of beer. The Hey Bartender sketch was an instant hit. So much so that John and Dan wanted to start a real band. They started with some personnel from the SNL house band. Lou Marini on sax, Tom Malone on trombone. Alan Rubin on trumpet, Paul Schaefer on keys, and Steve Jordan on drums. On guitar, they enlisted Matt Murphy, a Chicago legend who had played with everyone from Howlin' Wolf to Etta James. To give you a taste, here's Matt Murphy playing with Memphis Slim and Willie Dixon. Rounding out the band, rock and soul royalty, courtesy of Stax Records, Steve Cropper and Donald Duck Dunn step in on guitar and bass, respectively. Steve Cropper recounts the day he got the gig. A buddy of mine used to call me, and uh, usually if I was in the middle of mixing or overdubbing or something like that, they'd say Steve is busy and he can't come to the phone right now, and I'll leave a message. Well, we had this little thing that he would call and he would pretend that he was somebody and he'd say, this is, you know, President Nixon or this is Stevie Wonder or this is da-da-da-da-da-da. And I get this call and they said, John Belushi's on the phone. And I go, oh, yeah, my buddy. Hey, Alan, what's going on? He said, who? And I said, Alan, this isn't you. And he said, no, this is John Belushi. <laughs> anyway, I told him, I said, well, man, I'll have to get back to you. I just, you know. So in talking to Robin Ford a little bit later, he said, well, who was that? You know, and I said, well, believe it or not, it was John Belushi. And he said, oh, what's going on with that? And I said, well, he wants me to come to New York and start rehearsing for some shows. And he says, well, you got to do it? And I said, well, I don't know if I can. He said, well, I'll do it. <laughs> so <laughs> when my artist said he'd do it, I said, well, we'll try to work something out. The band, fully formed, is a geographic love letter to soul and the blues. New York, Memphis, Chicago, and even our friends in Canada are represented. This is the definition of supergroup. Fronted by Jake and Elwood Blues, this powerhouse band of musical veterans took to the stage at Universal Amphitheater on September 9, 1978 with the tape rolling. 
The album of that show, Briefcase Full of Blues, was a smash hit. Number one on the Billboard 200, double platinum status, and to date has sold more than 3.5 million copies and is one of the best-selling blues albums of all time. Dan and John were entitled to massive royalties for the record, but refused, giving all credit to the original songwriters. Bluesman Floyd Dixon recalls that he got $78,000, the biggest royalty check of his career. He put it all on the horses. Quote, I had a wonderful time, man. End quote. Floyd Dixon is officially my fucking hero. The obvious next step in this holy mission was a movie. They call up Universal, and the pitch is simple. Belushi, Aykroyd, Blues Brothers. How about it? Universal agrees. Just one problem. No script. Dan sits down and he writes... And writes. And writes. Dan had never written a screenplay before. His original draft was 324 pages. The average script is around 120 pages. John Landis's first job as director is narrowing the script down to a usable size. The completed script is a giant rock and roll fantasy of the highest order. The brothers must raise $5,000 to save the orphanage they were raised in. They go to a church where they receive holy inspiration to get the band back together. Yeah. The band. Do you see the light? The band. Do you see the light? What light? Have you seen the light? Yes. Yes. Armed with their mission from God, the brothers travel around to reunite the band. Along the way, they piss off cops, piss off some rednecks, an ex-girlfriend tries to kill them, and they're in Nazi crosshairs. It culminates with a concert at the Palace Hotel in Chicago, getting a record contract, and getting the money to the tax office just in the nick of time. The film ends with the brothers tearing up some jailhouse rock downstate at Joliet Prison. If you were to ask any digger to write their own music fantasy movie, it would no doubt resemble the Blues Brothers, including the cameos. This film has the best cameos, and so many that you might have missed some. Look closely, you'll see Frank Oz, 
John Candy, Twiggy, Shaka Khan, John Landis himself, Pee Wee Herman, Steven Spielberg, Joe Walsh, the best TV dad of all time, James Avery, and even Mr. Fucking T. But it's the musical cameos that seal the deal. 30s and 40s superstar Cab Calloway, James Brown, Ray Charles, Aretha Franklin, and John Lee Hooker all have prominent roles and big musical numbers in the film. The casting choices for these cameo roles was a bone of contention for the suits at Universal. They wanted current acts like Rose Royce doing her disco hit Car Wash instead of Aretha Franklin's number. My own hatred for disco aside, thank the rock gods that the Queen of Soul got this role. It revitalized Aretha's career, as it did for all these musicians, and it gave us this. You better think about what you're saying. You better think about the consequences of your actions. Oh, shut up, woman. You better think, think, think about what you're trying to do to me, yeah. Think, 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 that you might gonna let yourself be free. Let's go back, let's go back, let's go away on the I didn't even know you, you couldn't have been too much more than Carrie Fisher shows up at numerous inopportune moments as Jake's jilted lover and an unintentional domestic terrorist. Carrie and Aykroyd had an off-screen romance and an engagement, but our Princess of Alderaan found that there were 51 ways to leave your lover as she left Aykroyd for Paul Simon. She found a new man, Dan. Oh, please don't kill us! Please, please don't kill us! You know I love you, baby! I wouldn't leave you. It wasn't my fault. You miserable slug. You think you can talk your way out of this? You betrayed me. No, I didn't. Honest. I ran out of gas. I had a flat tire. I didn't have enough money for cab fare. My tux didn't come back from the cleaners. An old friend came in from out of town. Someone stole my car. There was an earthquake. A terrible flood. Locust. It wasn't my fault, I swear to God. There's a lot of press about them having a budget for cocaine, but truthfully, almost all movies from the 70s and 80s had cocaine budgets. Seriously, go watch Flash Gordon or Taxi Driver and tell me they weren't fucking wired. I'm more impressed by the car budget. The Bluesmobile itself is a 1974 Dodge Monaco. I want one, but really it's just because of this movie. Twelve Bluesmobiles were used in the making of this film. Fun fact, the replica at Universal Studios Hollywood is not even a Monaco. It's a Dodge Coronet. I wouldn't know the difference. I'm not really a car guy. I like Bruce Springsteen, but that's about as far as that goes. It's got a cop motor, a 440 cubic inch plant. It's got cop tires, cop suspension, cop shocks. It was a model made before catalytic converters, so it'll run good on regular gas. What do you say? Is it the new Bluesmobile or what? Fix a cigarette lighter. Someone hated cars, apparently. A total of 103 cars were destroyed during the filming, a world record at the time. Also, three watches were broken. They broke my watch. Finally, the Illinois Nazi subplot was more than just a gag. The speech that actor Henry Gibson is giving is real. It's a Frank Collins speech lifted directly from a documentary called The California Reich. 
Frank Collin was the minimally sentient garbage human who wanted to stage a Nazi march in Skokie, Illinois, a town full of Holocaust survivors. Yeah, that fuckhead. That dispute went all the way to the Supreme Court, and the court let the Illinois Nazis get their parade permit. By the way, Colin and his sad little crew of hateful idiots never actually did march on Skokie. The counter-protesters shut them down pretty hard. This all went down in the summer of 1978, and was still fresh on everybody's mind. Henry Gibson is an inspired choice to play the asswipe Nazi leader. His comic timing is spot on, and his regal presence in contrast with his 5'4 frame is absolutely hilarious. But in any event... Illinois Nazis. I hate Illinois Nazis. So Aykroyd and Belushi, a loopy plot, great cameos, killer music, a fucking outrageous car chase sequence. The Blues Brothers movie has it all. Our brain trust here at Real Rock consider it high culture. Go ahead. Try to convince us otherwise. We will fucking fight you. But when it was released, it didn't do all that well, and the reason is a bit nuts. Racism. You might not know who Ted Mann is, but he owned a chain of theaters and famously told Landis that he wouldn't show the film in any of his national or general theaters. He would play it in Compton, but never in Westwood. For one, he didn't want blacks in his nice movie house in Westwood, and two, whites wouldn't go see a film with that many, quote, out-of-fashion black performers, end quote. I haven't used the real rock soapbox in a while. So, Ted Mann, wherever you are, fuck you, dude. Mann's decision resulted in the film only being shown in 600 screens. Usually, a film with this kind of star power would have opened up in 1,400 screens. And critics panned the movie. The Washington Post printed that the film offers the melancholy spectacle of them sinking deeper and deeper into a comic grave. But I would argue that the Blues Brothers isn't just a comedy, it transcends comedy. It's a musical action fantasy comedy. It's a bit long, but it never stops being fun and everything works in it. Since its release, the Blues Brothers has taken on a life of its own and it still inspires people to this day. We have more than a few diggers out there who first learned about the roots of rock and roll from watching the Blues Brothers. I took to social media to see if any diggers wanted to share their own story. This first message was left to me by Marcellus. I remember going to the drive-in to see the Blues Brothers. Um, but I have to say, Blues Brothers touched me in a different way just from seeing all those black artists, but also seeing Dan, the John just because I had seen them in other things. So it's like, oh, God, it's like all this pop culture and history coming together all at one time. You know what I'm saying? Because I'm watching the movie with my mom and dad, and my mom and dad know certain artists, and then my grandmother knows certain artists. Why? You know, the Blues Brothers are like a, a, a gumbo of African-American culture. It's culturally relevant to me. Our next message is from our digger, Ron. It's 1992. I just graduated from high school. Wasn't a huge SNL fan, but I saw this poster in the store that said, Blues Brothers, on the mission from God. And man, I just had to have that because, hey, I was uh, going to a Christian uh, college. I was going to be a minister, and I was like, that's perfect for my dorm room. So I took it, hung it up, and then I said, well, heck, I'll watch the movie. You know, if that's what this poster is about changed my life 
had never seen Aykroyd uh, in a film like that. And then, you know, back then that was uh, pre-YouTube. So, you know, when you watch the whole movie, you're like, oh my gosh, the music's incredible. These guys are hilarious. And I think the mall chase will forever be etched in my brain as the absolute best car chase slash funny comedy scene I will ever have seen in my life. Great movie. Always thought these guys nailed it. And still, I feel like they were on the mission for God. Stories like these are not uncommon. And for this reason, the Blues Brothers deserves not only a five-star review from me, but is also a must-see film for any aspiring rock and roll archaeologist. Within Abel Hills Cemetery in Chilmark, Massachusetts, there sits the grave of John Belushi. Inscribed on the stone, I may be gone, but rock and roll lives on. It lives on in no small part because of this film. Thank you for joining me on this mission from God. Make sure you check out all our fine shows at rockandrollarchaeology.com. You can find everything there, including links to our Patreon page, where you can generously donate what you can to the cause, or pick up some Real Rock merch from the store. Follow us on all of your social media outlets, but the best thing you can do is tell a friend to check out the shows. And I love hearing your stories, so hit me up at realrockpodcast at gmail.com. That's real with two E's. I'm the Rock and Roll Reverend Andy King, and this has been Real Rock, The Blues Brothers, a production of Pantheon Media. Hit it, boys! Diggers, Christian Swain here with a short pause for a great cause. We believe music education for young people is an investment in a better future for all of us. If you listen to our podcasts, chances are you agree. Little Kids Rock has transformed the lives of more than 650,000 public school students by bringing music education into their schools. Little Kids Rock trains teachers in underfunded schools to teach kids the music they love. From the Beatles to Bruno Mars, Led Zeppelin to Lady Gaga, Chuck Berry to Chance the Rapper. Little Kids Rock has become a national movement to restore, expand, and innovate music education in public schools across America. Visit littlekidsrock.org and learn more about how you can help put music where it belongs, in our schools. Thank you, and let's keep up the rockin' right into the next generation. Real Rock is written by Andy King and produced by Christian Swain. All sound design and incidental music by Jerry Danielson. All quotes performed by actors unless noted. 
Playlists can be found at iTunes, Google Play, and Spotify. Please purchase these great and important tracks. All songs, clips, and references can be found on our show notes. Please visit rnrap.com for more information.